you know, I'm not proud of it, but a lot of lesbians of our generation, you know, had a lot of guilt. We both came out quite late um, for Chris. You know, she comes from somewhere but there's still a lot of homophobia. It, you know, it's it's very difficult to be gay, and uh, that's the reality. And then and then the whole thing about kind of when Chris died, it it became really I was became really aware that there was our Chris, who was my wife and the love of my life, and I was her wife and the love of her life, and we had these incredible kids and this amazing life, and then for her family. The Christine that they wanted to claim was heterosexual. She'd been married to a man. She'd never really come out. And, and so it was really difficult. And it's really interesting that in death, these things are inevitable. They must come out. But it's painful and it's difficult to share with other people who aren't part of the community. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleeson and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome to this episode of Shapes of Grief. And I really need to find a new way of introducing the podcast because you must all be so sick of listening to to those few lines. Um, I'm delighted today to be joined by Rach Underhill, all the way from the UK. Rach, you're really, really welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So Rach is one of one of us, one of you listeners. Um, Rach got in touch to let me know about a bereavement group she had set up in the UK last year after the death of her wife, Chris. And um, I asked Rach, would she come on the podcast and share her story for all our listeners, but particularly our LGBTQ plus listeners who um, haven't really found representation to date in the Shapes of Grief podcast. So we're changing that. um, And I'm so glad that Rach has chosen to step in. So there's, we, we, we've had a chat, Rach and I have met already um, on Zoom and talked about all sorts of things. And this is going to be a great conversation. I know already Rach is going to bring aspects to the, the conversation around grief that haven't arisen yet in the podcast, but that affect all of us. So do stick around. You don't have to be gay to resonate with this experience. Um, Rach, let's start with the love story. You sent an article that I read four or five times. It was just so beautiful. Where and when did you and Chris meet? Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, we, me and Chris met. Um, actually, it wasn't very salubrious circumstances. We met in this incredibly dodgy nightclub in Soho called The Ghetto. And uh, the clocks had just changed. So it, it was three o'clock, but it was really four o'clock. And uh, <clears throat> I was 
I'd had quite a lot of Dutch courage that evening. Um, but Chris, I later found out, had only had half a half a pint of cider. But we uh, we met on the dance floor, dancing to Prince, and uh, I I got the courage up and asked her to come back. And yeah, she came back, and and then it was hilarious. She came back, and she was like, well, "Can I have a cup of tea?" And I was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, let's have a cup of tea." But yeah, no, she was just this incredible. Yeah, she was just my person, I guess. And that's what um, was incredible about our our story is that from the first time we met, we just spent the entire weekend together. I mean, it sounds a bit lesbian. We didn't get matching dungarees and get a cat. And she did actually wait six months before moving in. So that was good. But um, yeah, she was. It was just like we had such a giggle. Um, she was just hilarious. She was just the funniest, kindest person I've ever met. And she lit up a room and when I met her on the dance floor, she just made me giggle. And and I've come now to a point where I think of her and I don't have this heart-wrenching pain. I just have a smile because that's how she made me feel. Um, so yeah, we met on the dance floor in the ghetto and we were together for 13 years. We, had, we have two children. We had an amazing life together. Um, there were ups and downs, but it was incredible. And I feel incredibly lucky and fortunate to have had her in my life. Um, and the kids, and we got married. We, Yeah, we just had this incredible life. And that's how we met. That was our love story. The photograph that will go with this podcast episode is a photo of you both on your wedding day. And just the, the happiness and the beauty that jumps off that photograph, it's its divine. Yeah. And, and it was about our kids as well. We waited, we, we made a commitment to each other, but we decided to wait until we'd legally adopted our children. And then it was a celebration of us as a family. And it was the happiest day of my life. And it was incredible. So Chris got ill then, she had a cancer diagnosis. Will you tell us a little bit just about what her illness, how her illness affected you as a family? Of course, yeah. Um, she she got breast cancer and obviously that was completely, you know, blew us all away. It was totally unexpected. She was a really healthy person, really never had any health issues at all. And then just got this lump and it was just you know it was just suddenly in this kind of surreal time frame where everything just kind of just went and she just did absolutely everything she was completely and utterly the bravest most compliant incredible patient she just went for it and she did every single therapy and took every medication did everything she could and then once the treatment had stopped she decided that she just didn't want to even think about it and and I kept sort of googling madly about diets and things that perhaps we should do changes she should make to her life but as well as being the kindest person in the world she was also quite willful so she was just like I'm not changing you know I'm living despite that I'm, I'm just going to carry on with my life and fuck the big C, because I'm, you know, this is my life. And we were so happy and blessed and the kids were so, are so amazing. And so we did, we just lived as if it, it hadn't happened. And <clears throat> we went on with our lives. 
And then she got a pain in her side and then she'd become a dog walker at the time. And she convinced herself that she'd been walking this very big dog and that she pulled a muscle in her side. And I remember thinking at the time, she's got, she had a really high pain threshold. She minimized everything. And I kind of remember saying to her, you know, just, I think you need to get that checked out, sweetheart. Let's go to the doctor. And it was, it, it was her cancer, it had come back and it was on her liver. And it was, yeah, it was absolutely like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. It was like, it, it was your, it's your worst fear. It's, you know, we all know that there's a chance, but she decided to live as if that chance was negligible, but it wasn't, it was very real and it did come back. And, and then we had, um, a terminal diagnosis and we were told that she would maybe have three three months four months and actually she ended up having eight, 18 months and um I was incredibly fortunate because I was able to stop work and and nurse her and be her full-time carer and and we were really lucky because we just had this incredible time together and and I really feel like we kind of fell in love with each other again and it, we just giggled and it was dark as hell and a nightmare in so many ways. But there were moments that were just, yeah, yeah, I feel very lucky. I think, Rach, so many people don't understand what it's like to live with cancer at times. And there's all sorts of different degrees, but to live with terminal cancer is pretty hardcore. Um, and there's, there's a grief that begins. You're beginning to imagine what will life be like without this person who's the center of my world. Could you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you, the anticipatory grief? And did you and Chris talk about her dying and her death? Well, in the, in the piece that I wrote, I, I, I sort of talk about anticipatory grief because for me, I don't know if it was helpful because we were in such different places. Chris throughout was kind of, you know, she'd do impersonations. She'd kind of give out sweeties in the hospital. She'd make everyone laugh. She was hilarious. And I was in the back, background just fighting and yeah, just trying to get her needs met and trying to negotiate with different professionals about why the death plan wasn't being honored and why we weren't getting what she had we, you know she'd asked for because we were very clear that we didn't want her to die at home that that would be too difficult for our children and that we wanted her to go to a hospice but then the reality hits that actually you know the situation is such that there just wasn't space at the time so the the plan was still there but it didn't happen and so it's it's the anticipatory grief isn't this sort of time of processing where you kind of like terms of endearment and you're in a beach hut, just wallowing in your love and connecting. It's actually the reality is that <clears throat> Chris was going from home to hospital and being in this, you know, shared ward. And it was just fighting, fighting, fighting the entire time. And Chris didn't, didn't, didn't feel able to talk about it. And so that was very difficult. And I'd respected the first time that she was ill that she just wanted to kind of block it and carry on with our life and that was that was fine but when the terminal diagnosis came in it was harder because she still wanted to block it and carry on with our life 
but the reality was very different. We weren't carrying on with her life with her well. We were carrying on with her our life with her terminally ill and increasingly disabled by that. And, and my responsibility had really changed. Um, and the dynamics between us had really changed. I was her full-time carer. And that's a very difficult dynamic to, to be the full-time carer for the love of your life because it's it's all the personal care, it's it's everything. And you know, when you love someone that much, you'll do everything. I there wasn't a moment's hesitation for me, but it it's it's about keeping the connection while the relationship has to change. And there's such a profound loss moving from lover to carer. Yeah. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training programme. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online programme which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. And, and touch and being physical is, you know, it's so incredibly important to a relationship. You know, we had an incredible physical relationship, although I have got teenagers, so I have to be careful about not talking about that too much. But yeah, and so it was a loss. It was a huge loss. And and it it's difficult because, you know, um, when you're, when you're, responsible for somebody in the way that you have to be you know it's just that that very difficult dynamic of being really respectful about the fact that you know there were certain medications Chris didn't want to take you know ironically she didn't complain once about her chemo or the other hideous things that she had to do but she'd never take a bloody paracetamol you know and it was like what the hell is that <laughs> <laughs> I popped those with gay abandon, you know, but I guess for her it was like an easy refuse, you know, whereas mm. the chemo was possibly gonna give her a bit more life. Um, yeah. I think there's there's something as well about how people meet you or don't meet you in that anticipatory period as well. And you know, tell me if I'm wrong if it's different for you, but you're there going through so much loss and, it, you know, we call it anticipatory grief, but there's also the ambiguous loss, you know, Chris is still alive, but yet you've lost your lover. Chris is still alive, but yet you've lost this equal relationship where you each have a hand on each other's back, you know. Do you know what I mean by ambiguous loss in this context? Like nobody has died, but yet so much is lost during that period of time maybe the person you would have gone to with your woes or your worries, you begin to protect them now and um, to not put anything else on their plate, things like that. Was that true for you? Rach? Absolutely. It, it totally resonates with me. It was like incrementally losing the person that you're desperately trying to cling on to. And, and, and you know, in, in every way, you know, physically and emotionally and, and you know, cognitively, because the, cancer went to her brain and you know it's the love is there and it doesn't change I, I felt the intensity of my love for her but 
it's very difficult. It's, you know, it, it, it becomes a sort of battle really, because you have to keep bringing yourself back from a carer to a lover, to a kind of, yeah, it, you're juggling lots of different emotions about how you feel about that person. And, and wanting just to keep, you know, keep their dignity. You know, that's just so important for me that Chris felt like her dignity was being respected and that our love was being, you know, it was really there, it was really in the room. And it was funny because at the end, she used to, whenever I came into the hospice, so I'd come in every day after I saw the kids and uh, she every day she'd say, it's you, like that. And, uh, and I'd come in and sit down and, and it really made me laugh because I, I was thinking, why, why does she say that? Because I'm here every single day. In fact, I'm here like 24 seven sometimes when I could stay in the room and the hospice were amazing and put a bed next to hers. But I think it was just her way of kind of going, you know, I get it. I get that we're still connected. It's you. It's, yeah. And it and it really, you know, it really helps. And it and it makes me realise that even though she wasn't who she had been, she was still herself. And we still had that connection. And that was really incredible for me that she was physically so not herself and cognitively not herself, but she was still able to connect with me in those few words. I'm so glad to know the hospice put a bed in. It's lovely. We don't quite do that here yet. I don't think um, Helen Lamb, who did an episode you probably listened some time ago, episode 21 or 22, talks about lying on the floor um, beside her husband when he was um, in, hosp in hospice or hospital, but uh, in his final weeks she stayed over with him and lay on the floor. And, you know, something that she's trying to do is change policy around partners having a bed or getting bariatric beds into the hospitals, the large beds so two people can sleep in them. How important yeah. was that for you, Rach, to be able to stay there and lie beside her? It was absolutely crucial. It was, it was, it had been so painful and difficult in the hospital because she just had a curtain around her and there were six other people and to get, you know, confirmation of, you know, the end being in sight in that environment and trying to kind of make that a safe place for her was impossible. And once we got to the hospice, she was initially sharing and then a room became available and it was a family room. And the, the nurses were just incredible. Just the kindness was just breathtaking and, and as she came in the doors from the ambulance, I'd, I'd been caring for her in the hospital as well as at home because there was just such um, short staffing problems at the hospital. So I was doing a lot of her changing and sewing her bed and whatever. And, and the minute we got to the hospice, this nurse just put her hand on my arm and she said, you need to stop being her carer and be her wife. And I was like, wow we've come to the exactly the right place this is where we need to say goodbye and this amazing Hungarian nurse came rushing down the corridor with this bed and she said I found this bed that's just like Chris's so it will be exactly the same level as yours quickly open the doors before anyone notices <laughs> and so we got it in and so every night I'd move the bed next to hers and then I'd sleep next to her 
hold her hand and it was just incredible just you know it was such a gift and I am forever indebted to those incredibly kind and generous people because it was about love you know I I my heart goes out to people who've lost people in COVID and that touch because the nursing staff used to kiss Chris's forehead every morning and every night and I just loved it I just it just communicated the kind of care that they were providing and it was beautiful and uh, they let me do like because she became very very sensitive to light and smells and everything and so we had this room and I just spent ages kind of just making it um, a more comfortable space for her because all of that, like all those sort of places, there's lots of strobe light, isn't there? And so we had kind of fairy lights and her favourite lamps. And, and then I spent a whole day making all these paper chains because she was looking up at the ceiling and I just thought, God, it's so horrible and institutional because it's all white and cold and... So I just made thousands and thousands of paper chains. I was like a demented person. Every time they came in to feed her, I was just sat there and this, this little pile of paper chains was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And anyway, I put them all up and um, and and I was uh, talking to everyone and and the doctors used to come in and go, oh, I, we really like coming to Chris's room because it's really lovely. And, and then one of the nurses said to me after Chris had died, she said, you know, that was amazing what you did because we had kind of all the photographs on the wall and all the photographs next to her and so she was surrounded by us and the love that we had and and she the nurse said to me Chris had a moment where she just kind of opened her eyes and she said to me I love my room look at look at my room I love my room and I just thought I'm so glad she was there and uh, the staff were so generous and let me just do my thing and madly make paper chains and kind of create the space that I really wanted Chris to be in so that she could be at peace at the end. It's so moving listening to you. It sounds so beautiful. Um, and I love that you just naturally went to your hands and created and like I think grief really needs that sort of expression. It needs movement or creation or words or song or something, but it needs expression. And and do you still have those paper chains? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it was really because, you know, there's a kind of it was very difficult because when she died, I was with their, my friend and I just needed to come back to the kids because I needed them to be the first to know. And so I felt very torn because I wanted to be with Chris and, and, and there, but I needed to be home and telling the Chris, the kids and holding them through it. So I did, I, I kind of picked up all these paper chains and my friend was going, I, I'm not sure there's room in the car. <laughs> so I had to leave them. So I'm hoping they went in the recycling or somebody else got used to them. Uh, maybe yeah. they're still hanging up in a staff room <laughs> in the hospice or something. And I love that, the, the notion of the nurses kissing her forehead. Um, there's something so comforting about other people loving your person as well. I, you know, my dad died earlier this year and I cared for him also. And um, 
Uh, we just the most amazing nurses from the Philippines, actually, and a couple of Irish ones, too. But just after he died and I had kind of pulled away, you know, I was stroking his head a little but for me it was like, no, he's, he's gone, he's not in there. And I remember this young Filipino nurse who had been caring for him, like we invited them all to come over to the house and she was just hugging him and kissing him. And I was like, good, she's, she's loving him more than I am right now. But it was so... Um, it was just so nice to know that he was that that other people get what he meant and and were able to to show him affection, not just us. It it makes it a, a community affair rather than a personal loss or something. Yeah, and it also makes it such a celebration of them. It's like in the hospice, they all adored Chris because she was such a character. She was kind of doing Elvis. Presley impersonations and she had this obsession with sweeties at the end like she'd constantly kind of give them out like anyone that came within the sort of 10 meter proximity of her had to have lots of sweets and sit down with her and have a bit of a chat and it was just lovely and and she became obsessed with porridge like totally obsessed with porridge she was Scottish but she never was as uh, but we I, I printed off all these photos of porridge and put them on the because they brought her such joy it was good, and it was great it's like so random <laughs> bowls of porridge <laughs> yeah and and the, and the staff were really all over it because it was like she did because she was cognitively impacted I I put up kind of post-its just all over about kind of you know reminding her of things and and kind of just words and things and and the porridge was hilarious because it became a real thing like all the staff would kind of come in and go oh Chris it's it's uh 15 minutes to porridge and she'd be like oh, fantastic and then and then she'd kind of go I think I need cream I think and so each each kind of couple of days we'd be adding something else some nuts or some cream or something but she yeah porridge was a big part of her life at the end we talk about it a lot but when it was going to happen these details isn't it how these details kind of take over and offer some sort of holding or containment and it's the the image of a bowl of porridge it's like this container and this warmth and this comfort and as you describe Chris's room it's like this container with love and warmth and comfort it's not so random maybe and giggles there was a lot of giggling because mm. whenever the the staff changed her bed and moved her um we'd always find sweeties like that she'd squirreled away and then and then after she died I was clearing out her things and I found a glasses case and I've still got it actually and it's got all her least favorite pills in it and she was obviously hiding them from the staff and I at the end I'd said to them you know can we just not worry about what she is and isn't taking just let's make sure she has enough sweets and when she's comfortable and the yeah. porridge. The porridge is way more important than any of the pills. Hmm. You spoke about her death briefly in the article. Um, I assume most people listening won't have read it, so maybe just say a few words about that. I guess it was, uh, it was very difficult because I suppose I, I had this image of her death being something that would sort of happen quite suddenly and and I think when you have a terminal diagnosis it's guesswork and I don't think that people really know that 
And I think that we were incredibly lucky in the hospice that she was in because the staff were incredible and, and they were really open about that. They were like, these are the things that we look out for and this is our best guess. But actually, you know, she she was given, a, you know, a couple of days at best and then ended up in being in the hospice for almost six weeks. And so that was a huge thing because it was like there were days that it just felt like what kind of quality of life has she got and what is the impact on me and the kids of this because it was just so incredibly hard to watch her and 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 to feel so powerless to help her because there was only one way it was going to end but that ending there was no way of knowing when it was going to come and then when it did come you know there had been kind of quite a few false alarms a lot of times where people had said this is the time and then when the time did come it felt a little bit like is this really the time and the morning that she died I remember waking up next to her at five in the morning and just having a feeling that things were different that her breathing was different that the noise she was making was very different and it was very distressing. And that was that was unexpected because I kind of felt like we'd done everything to make it so peaceful. And then actually the reality is that it is distressing. Of course it's distressing. You know, it's not just distressing because, you know, it's death, which is messy and complicated, but it's distressing because it's the reality of no longer kind of negotiating with medical staff about when we stop this and start that and how how much time is left it's like you're you're suddenly in that time distressing because it's it's actually going to happen that's what you mean is it yeah uh, i think you know we talk about the different types of our memory implicit memory and explicit memory is it and it's it's like we know we have this memory that someone has a terminal illness and we know cognitively that they're going to die, but to actually sit there with the reality, it's like an embodied reality suddenly happens as opposed to a cognitive. And it's like every cell in your body just doesn't want it to happen, you know? Absolutely. And it was a very visceral reaction I had. It was like just... You the whole thing was overwhelming and it was amazing being at the hospice because I, I, you know, I did, I did have a kind of moment at about eight o'clock in the morning where I just felt totally terrified, absolutely terrified. Like I wasn't going to be able to manage. And um, the, and it was really interesting, really interesting because Chris's favorite nurses were on that day. And they hadn't been on for two weeks and people had been saying to me, you know, her time is coming, you know, it won't be long now. And I think she waited for those two. And I really believe that in my heart because they were just the most incredible people, just beautiful, beautiful. And then, and anyway, I kind of hit this wall and they just held me and they said, you need to go out and just have a moment. And I did. <clears throat> and I trusted them so implicitly that it was okay. And I went and I had a coffee and I 
did a lot of breathing and I came back in and I was able to to be there um, I got her favorite her, her song list on and we got through it and I said goodbye and I was able to keep saying to her you can go now sweetheart we're gonna be all right and that was really important you know she needed to hear that and I had been saying that over and over but it was only at that point that it really became you know. that you meant it maybe yeah. yeah and remember this is a grief podcast it's okay to cry Rachel <laughs> yeah no I am yeah. absolutely you I'm know, all it's... about crying emotions yeah. are our friends let's have them absolutely um what was life like once Chris was gone I think something that people don't realize with anticipatory loss is it can still be such a huge shock, even when we've been waiting for it for years. It can still be such a huge shock when it happens. Absolutely. And that whole thing about kind of my, you know, mind and heart is like you can you can talk yourself through it. You can do as much anticipatory grieving as you like. But the reality is so incredibly different. And in the piece I write about this kind of feeling of being superhuman, I just felt so pumped full of adrenaline because I just wasn't sleeping. And I was, you know, pulled in every direction because I went from being Chris's full-time carrier to organising a funeral to kind of hosting my extended family for Christmas and trying to make sure that I was getting the kids through it. And, and it all felt like I was going to, you know, like, wow, you know, it's okay. Like I'm I'm this incredibly kind of strong person who's currently kind of done the anticipatory grieving, managed my loss and happy days. And then <laughs> the wall hit and I just was like, but no, that, that wasn't it. This is what this is. This is grief. And this is absolutely terrifying. And it was like repeatedly being pummeled by waves in the really, really stormy sea and just feeling like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that's going to work. And, and I think we talked about kind of that feeling of having your skin peeled off. And it did. It felt like I had these massive sores all over my body. And all I could do was kind of wrap them in cling film and, and really kind of work out who could help you know it's like I, I kind of felt a bit like a leper I remember walking down the road and this neighbor just crossed over the road from me and I mean to be fair I must have looked like a character of Tim Burton I sort of lost two and a half stone and I had these massive trauma eyes so I must have not really looked like you know myself but it was it was like just this this moment of realizing that I couldn't just wrap this thing up in a ball and pretend it didn't happen or go charging down the river of denial it wasn't going to happen I had to confront it and and it has been such a revelation for me kind of reaching out and the group in particular and just you know reading and sharing has just really really helped I, I still feel the loss in a way that is physical but it's integrated. It doesn't define me anymore. And I'm not afraid of it. That's the thing. That's I think the big one. 
yeah yeah and I don't I don't know that I ever thought about that but it did it felt really scary I think a lot of people, and I could relate to this as well, it's like we're so afraid to express the grief because it's like, it's so big. Is this just going to consume me or drown me or pull me into some sort of vortex that I'll never return from? And it's almost that avoidance causes such tremendous suffering. But it's really just to jump back a little to what you were saying that like for six months or so you were this superhuman and I've, I think I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm coping with this and maybe I've done my grief and then it boof, it hits and it's just so unfortunate in one way that that happens because you know, people go, oh, well, she's doing fine. And then people and support withdraws. And then when you actually are seven or eight months down the road, and the full impact of your loss is only beginning to hit you. Um, because I think, you know, nature is kind of kind. It does protect us for a while. Um, everybody's gone at that point. It's like they've, they've stopped the support. And I kind of have a policy when someone dies or when someone's bereaved, I don't go rushing in. I wait a few months usually. And then I go, okay, now I'm going to give attention to this person and bring up dinner and spend time with them. And more often than not, there's nobody else there anymore. Everybody else is withdrawn. Yeah. Was what was your experience of that? And I like, and just what sorry, before you go on to that image of you walking down the road with your Tim Burton eyes, people do that, don't they? They cross the road, they avoid us. Remember when dad died as well? God I can't believe this and like you know I work in grief I'm okay like I'm managing this and I'm still being avoided you know um it's mean it's mean yeah. don't do it people yeah <laughs> yeah don't do it people but don't be angry us because I was very angry with people yeah. and actually you don't know their backstory and I think we have to kind of be generous about that because I actually I didn't get it I've lost people in the past but I've never experienced anything like this and I don't think people really understand it so I kind of now have a more kind of tolerant response I kind of think you just don't get it you're not being mean or cruel you just don't get it and and actually I can't be bothered to explain it yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so let's just not let's, let's just not. deep breath and next best thing yeah. Yeah. But I think it's that misattunement that was really painful for me. It was, you know, it was a, a month. I had a month of just feeling superhuman and full of adrenaline and then it hit. And then, you know, it was funny because all the condolence cards just felt meaningless. And it was interesting because my daughter's incredibly insightful and emotionally articulate. And she just said to me, why do people send these cards and I just thought yeah I'm not I'm not kind of sure because there were some that were beautiful that would really people had really thought and you know people shared some photographs and had written, written some amazingly helpful things but actually the whole kind of process of kind of dear H sorry for your loss was just so unhelpful it was just like yeah, but yeah, I don't want you sorry for. I want I want you to put dinner on the stairs for me, so I don't have to do that. I want 
you to be alongside me and talk to me about your experiences with Chris and share some amazing memories and celebrate her life. I don't I don't want these cards that don't really it's not I don't know. I don't know why we still market with that. It's like, you know, it doesn't didn't help me at all. What helped me with these incredible people that I have in my life, you know, my brother and my sister-in-law were absolutely phenomenal. They just put their life on hold and came and lived here for a bit and helped me with the kids. And, you know, that is just the most amazing act of generosity. And people would kind of drop a lasagna on the door and text me, you know, dinners at the door. There was no kind of need for the, wow, what a generous kind thing you've done. They just did it, you know. And it's and actually kind of- research shows that it's that practical help that is more popular with grievers rather than the emotional stuff, interestingly. Yeah. And don't ask somebody who's recently bereaved what you can do. Just do it, you know. Send them some food, you know. Be alongside them. Give them space. You know, Let work out what it is that they need. Don't Don't put the burden on them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the cards. You can really relate to that. And, you know, I think I got four cards out of maybe 60, four that actually meant something. And they were just from random people, like from my sister-in-law's sister. It really touched me because she sat down and she actually wrote a letter. And she wrote about her memories of my dad and how he had touched her and, you know, a little bit about her own loss. And it's like, that's just so meaningful and lovely. And I still have to write back to her, but I will. Um, I, like she's who I hold in mind and she's someone I don't even know very well or a neighbor down the road, like who sent me, you know, the most beautiful card and said she was online at dad's service and reflected on how I spoke at it. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she was there, you know? Um, but they were two of maybe four cards that really actually hit the heart and dropped in. Um, yeah, we've a lot to learn as well around cards and just if it doesn't even have to be a lot or a letter, but just that it's real and meaningful. Yeah. And, and we have to manage our expectations because, yeah. you know, there were so many people that I really, really trusted and really expected to be there that just weren't. And then there was all these people that I didn't. I had no, no idea would come and have come and have been incredible you know Pat you're going to talk to as well you know he's my grief buddy but he's like one of my closest friends we're like family and it's like it's incredible and that's the thing it's like not to get too sucked in by all of the stuff that people didn't do and the misattunement that people kind of constantly show but actually to celebrate the positives and 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 that's a process though isn't it like that you've got to feel that misattunement and the pain of that and then make a decision of that's not where I'm going to hover but it's I described it like and I'd love to get your feedback on this it's like we have our inner circle of friends the next circle the next circle and I think when we go into a difficult time in our lives 
we expect those circles to be mirrored in the support that the inner circle will give you the most support and but actually that's not the way it happens at all it's like often people who are in these outer circles step in the people you expect to be there holding your hand have vanished and you know if we can understand that that trust there will be enough people they might be the ones we think but we are held and like you say like try not to get down that lens of who didn't show up you know but we shared friendships we shared family members we shared relationships you know when someone we love dies there's so much more than the primary loss what was your experience of that rach absolutely it was totally that completely resonates resonates for me it's like any relationship that was quite difficult or had a bit of a crack in it when Chris died there was just this massive chasm and I no longer have contact with any of those people and it was like the anticipation from them was that well the expectation sorry was from them was that I would suddenly take on Chris's role and Chris was a, a an incredible people pleaser she placated everyone she did a lot you know I was I was the I you know I, I I drove the train and she kind of went around giving everyone everything that they wanted and you know she was the sort of, <laughs> yeah she was the sort of person that her biggest anxiety would be that somebody could come out to our house and not feel welcomed and looked after you know, she was a big feeder and it was always, you know, lots of giggles and lovely music and stuff. And I was the one kind of in the background, sort of driving the train and negotiating things. And yeah. So anyway, when when she died, that kind of expectation that I would suddenly become Chris and, and be people pleasing and humoring some very bad behavior. I just couldn't. I just literally couldn't do it. I was just like, either you get what's going on which is this you know and and I, I liked your idea of kind of the layers but for me it was just like my head had blown off and I just I couldn't I couldn't negotiate relationships I just was like look you either get that I'm in pieces or you don't you know my head is just literally blown off and I've got to work out a way to be with the kids so I can't step into some weird dynamic that Chris had with you where she constantly placated you and humoured you and brought you in and whatever she did, you either kind of change and come here and help me or, you know, bye, <laughs> really, you know, and... And, and, and did you was... say that or did you just elude that? Oh, I would have loved to say it, but no, I just, I heard Chris's voice and, you know, I, I didn't, you know there was some very bad behavior and people really let us down and particularly it was very painful and people letting the kids down but I never got into it because I never wanted to and Chris was very you know she she didn't like any kind of confrontation so I just I let it run its course and those people have left and that's okay because in fact it's much better than okay because those people have have left and the people I have now in my life are incredible and really help. And it, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? It's 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 both good and bad. It's happy and sad, you know. But it's it's I can imagine it can be terribly scary to be standing on that in-between ground. You know, I think is it Elizabeth, what's her name? Elizabeth Gilbert writes beautifully about this, about 
you know, not knowing what's ahead of you, but just knowing what you have right now is not okay. And having the courage, you know, those of us who've left marriages or similar situations or friendships, relationships, to have the courage of, I don't have a replacement. I don't necessarily have a safety net in front of me, but I know this isn't okay. And I'm going to step forward off that proverbial cliff um, and doing that in the depths of grief can only be terrifying. So well done. But, but necessary, you know, yeah. I think, I think that, um, you know, you do have this incredible kind of, uh, it's make or break, you have to survive. And for me, you know, the kids have been incredible in terms of, you know, kicking that survival in for me. It's like I, I, I had to kind of work out a way to navigate my grief so that I could be there for them. Mm. But in that, there's this sort of, it, it's it's almost like I, I feel now that I, I, I can't really do the kind of superficial. I don't know whether that makes any sense, but it's like, I, I crave connections with people and I've always been somebody who likes, you know, really likes to connect, but I just can't do the superficial at all. It just feels like life's too short. I just, you know, it's. <laughs> and I, I resonate also, with that. Yeah. <laughs> gauge is a nightmare. <laughs> and I also, I kind of feel as well at the same time, like everything is manageable because the most, horrendously terrifying thing has happened so like you know come on a podcast why not you know I would never have done something like this before Chris died but I'm just like yeah nothing is as scary as that it's fine it's all good so what about being gay Rachel do you think that has had an impact on Chris's dying death your grief you know how has because it does matter like it you know it does there is a difference um could you speak a little bit about that experience about maybe how that your sexuality impacted your grieving process yeah absolutely I think you know that's why we set up the group because we were acutely aware that actually being in a sort of generic um bereavement group just didn't fit for us there were lots of things for me that were specific to the fact that I was married to a woman that made it different and our relationship you know we both have have mothers who you know weren't very comfortable to say the least about our relationship and so we did a lot of kind of people pleasing and uh, I remember with your we, families with our mothers yeah okay. particularly and um I remember taking them on holiday to Paris and it was hilarious because we took them on this holiday and the entire time they referred to us as the girls. And, and it was just like, why are we allowing ourselves to be completely infantilized and our relationship completely kind of, you know, ignored or, or whatever. But it was it was funny and we both found it funny, but it, it really made me laugh because we stayed in this little hotel and <laughs> we went around all the rooms and there were these beautiful rooms with kind of four poster beds and views you know just like amazing and uh so our mothers chose their rooms and then we got to the third room and it was really dark and it was right by a car park and there were these two single twin beds <laughs> for the girls 
<laughs> and I was just like, you know, we're not doing this ever again. <laughs> so it was a very romantic weekend. <laughs> yes, it was. It was super romantic for us. <laughs> and why did you let them? Well, guilt, isn't it? You know, a lot of, you know, I'm not proud of it, but a lot of uh, lesbians of our generation, you know, had a lot of guilt. We both came out quite late um, for Chris. You know, she comes from somewhere, but there's still a lot of homophobia. It, you know, it, it's very difficult to be gay. And uh, that's the reality. And then and then the whole thing about kind of when Chris died, it, it became really, I was became really aware that there was our Chris, who was my wife and the love of my life, and I was her wife and the love of her life. And we had these incredible kids and this amazing life. And then for her family, the Christine that they wanted to claim was heterosexual. She'd been married to a man. She'd never really come out. And and so it was really difficult. And it's really interesting that in death, these things are inevitable. They must come out, but it's painful and it's difficult to share with other people who aren't part of the community. Yeah. They don't get the marginalization or the stigma that you've been through and the other losses that you've been through, the family dynamics, and these are all things that are such an important part of the grieving process. And I think, you know, being gay adds a whole other layer to that. And I suppose like we, we talk about not giving the burden to the person who's bereaved. Nyasha, Nyasha, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, speaks about this, about needing, she's black. And when her baby died, she needed to see a black therapist because she's like, I just didn't want to, to go through those layers of explaining my experience in the world for the therapist to be able to get my grief. So tell us a little bit about the group, um, Rach. You met Pat, you were introduced via a mutual friend. I will be meeting Pat in a couple of days, so we won't maybe talk about his story, but Pat was bereaved and you met at the marshes, you told me. Yes, we went, we both have dogs and we met on Hackney Marshes um, on a dog walk and we just clicked instantly and we just talked and um, it was it was lovely and we both kind of had this moment of saying, gosh, you know, we've, we've been searching everywhere and we just can't find a specific group. Um, and we, we really, really want to kind of be part of a group. And at that time I was um, hosting um, bereavement groups for the Good Grief Trust. And I'd been a member of a group and during lockdown, which had been incredibly helpful to me, but I really wanted a LGBTQ plus group. And, and I'd always felt like part of the dynamic in the generic groups was that you have to kind of come out and actually you don't want, I didn't want to come out. I just wanted to talk about my grief and I didn't want to have to deal with the fact that still people have kind of different reactions to your coming out. And so um, myself and Pat sort of talked about how we, how we could do that, how we could set up a group. And so we approached, Linda from the Good Grief Trust and, and I said, look, you know, I, I love hosting these groups, but I actually want to do one that's specific and 
what do you think about us being part of your umbrella? And she was really, really positive about it. And um, so we started the group and it's just been fantastic. And we have people from all over the world, actually. It's kind of strange, but there are no LGBTQ specific groups, like not just in England or Ireland, but like everywhere. It, we have people coming to our group from Canada. We've had people from kind of European countries. And, and it's like, because we're doing it virtually on Zoom, it's brilliant because we can we can have everybody and anybody and that's lovely and you know the only requirement is that you've lost a significant person in your life and that the most important message in our group is that there's no judgment at all and it just feels like an incredibly safe space it's like a kind of grief family we all just come and there's no hierarchy there's just a sharing of grief and there's often a lot of laughter there's a lot of tears and there's a lot of kind of sharing um you know what's been helpful what's not been helpful you know and and people are at different stages which I think is really really important because a lot of people come with the rawness of new grief and to to speak to people that are maybe a little bit further down the line is incredibly hopeful really when I chatted with you last night, you know, we, we talked about sex and we have not touched on that today. And I'm not going to let you go until we do, because, um, yeah, it's just so important. Um, I interviewed a man called Irvin Yalom. Anyone who's a psychotherapist would know who he is. Um, he's, I think. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. Yeah, he's nice. I love him. Yeah. I interviewed him for my grief education program and we talk about this because he mentions it in his book how when his wife of 70 years died um, and he is 92 he all he wanted was sex he said he just became obsessed with looking at women's breasts and wanting to have sex and it was so strong that he, he was like, asked some colleagues, what, what's going on for me? And where's the research about this? And he found it really, really hard to, um, to find anyone talking about it or writing about it. And I think it's a thing because I know after my dad died, I had a date like two weeks later and it was like that adrenaline thing you described of, just go out and live and reproduce or, you know, enjoy the moment, not even reproduce, but go out and enjoy the moment um, and, and live life to the full. And I think making love or having sex is one of the, the greatest expressions of being alive. Um, and a friend of mine, when she got devastating news, she went home and had sex with her husband. She was like, we need more children. You know, there's, there's something really primal I think in there what what was your experience of that well definitely I mean I remember reading that Julia Samuels book and she talks about how some people become kind of sex addicts because it's like you fill the void there's this horrible kind of loss and you need to do something to fill it and and for me I guess it was like the self-care it was like I've never been very good at that and and I've got really into running and kind of physically feeling stronger and and more secure in my body has kind of awakened that need to kind of, you know, have sex, be physical with people. Because when you are with somebody who's, you know, as ill as Chris was for such an extended period of time, you can't, you know, that that side of you kind of disappears because 
it's not possible. And then it, it feels like after the rawness and the trauma of grief, it's like everything becomes really present and, and more intense. And it, it makes sense. Of course, you want to enjoy life and, and, and just grab it, you know. So absolutely having sex is, is, you know, I think one of the many things that I thought about multiple loss was that our life would never be the same and that I would never have another relationship and that I would never have sex again. You know, it's kind of like, you know, suddenly I have to just shut down everything because this huge trauma has happened. But actually now for the first time, it's like there's this positivity and hope and actually from talking and, and accessing support and, and being in this different place I've you know everything's possible and and yes yeah definitely I've got physical needs like everybody else and I, and I want to I want to find you know that person and yeah make hay <laughs> you know this might sound crazy but I think some people need permission to be happy again you know and um like we will always carry grief when you've had a profound loss it'll always be there but you're also allowed to experience joy and I think people are scared from my experience in clinic people are scared to do anything that might make them smile or bring them joy because what will people think will people think that I don't care anymore that I don't love them anymore will people think that I'm fine now and stop asking and we've got to realize that the grief is always there and there can also be love there and there can also be sex there. It's just all there together. It's not one or the other. If someone's out dating again, it doesn't mean they've got over someone else they loved. It's just that they're moving forward with that loss and acknowledging that there's still a living, breathing human being who has a right to love again. You know, I often say that to people I support. You're allowed to be happy because I realize some people need to hear that from someone else. <laughs> you're allowed to experience moments of joy. You know, you're allowed to smile again. You're allowed to go and have a night out and have fun. And it doesn't mean that you don't love your person who's died. No, and absolutely. It's, you know, that completely makes sense to me because it's like that. It's not only the pressure from everybody about judgment it's also your own judgment it's like you know am I disrespecting her memory how can I possibly love again because I'll never find another Chris and of course I won't find another Chris but that doesn't mean my life is on hold it and actually it's it's such a disservice to her to kind of be Mrs Haversham she wouldn't have wanted that you know she if she was here she'd be really proud of me she'd be really proud of the kids and she would be she celebrated life and she was the most incredible light of my life. And she would have gone, said to me, wait, just do it, go for it. Isn't that great that you feel like that? And, and it's, it's okay. It's, in fact, it's more than okay. It's like reaching a point in your grief where you go, do you know what? My life was on hold because I was her full-time carer. And then I was dealing with this incredibly traumatic, experience of grief but now I'm just kind of I'm okay and life is going on and life is full of these amazing opportunities and happiness 
And, and that doesn't mean that we're not sad sometimes. Of course we are. But the sadness has no longer got the upper hand. The happiness has. So for anyone listening, what a message of hope. And what I love about this coming from you, Rach, is, you know, earlier on in our conversation, the depth of your love and the depth of your grief is just so apparent. Like you can experience profound loss and give this message of hope. So that, that means something. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So keep on listening. Rach told me she's listened to every episode of Shapes of Grief. So now you're in there too. Um, beautiful episode, beautiful conversation. And I wish you lots of hay. <laughs> and month, may, may the sun keep shining for you for a long time. Thank you very much. And for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleason, take really good care. Come down to condemn
Keep going. Right, bro. 